Welcome to John Glenn College of Public Affairs Policy Brief, webcast series of informed conversations with policymakers and influencers and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the Glenn College and proud to be your host. And I'm joined today by Tracy Nahara, the Executive Director of the Children's Defense Fund of Ohio. Hi, Tracy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So, Tracy, I want to start by um, sort of humanizing the the challenge and the, the work that you do at the Children's Defense Fund. So, uh, COVID is running rampant through uh, Ohio and the nation. Take us through um, some a story or, or an anecdote about a family who's in that vulnerable circumstance, um, presumably pre-COVID, they, they were in that circumstance too, but maybe COVID has exacerbated that. Just walk us through the, the, the story for, for how they've been impacted by, by the pandemic. Absolutely. I think an important um point of context here is that there's around 500,000 children in the state of Ohio who live in poverty. So one in five. Um, There are many more who live right at the cusp of it, who are, you know, just a paycheck, maybe their families are a paycheck away from being homeless or from, you know, skipping meals. Um, So before the pandemic, we had a, a large swath of our population who are already struggling with housing insecurity, food insecurity, not having health insurance, or um, the proper treatment or management of chronic health diseases. So we, uh, this is before COVID, families were challenged. Yeah. I think another aspect of that, this is um, some of the top or the fastest growing jobs before the pandemic didn't pay a living wage. So we have that component as well. Now, with COVID-19 and the stay-at-home orders that were issued, now what we're seeing is that many of our workers at the lowest rung of our economic ladder um, are no longer bringing home a paycheck. Even if it was a very modest paycheck, they're not bringing it home. Um, so you can have a family, and I'll just, I'll just give you like an anecdote of a, you know, a family that I've heard about you know, right here in Columbus. Um, you can have a family who was really struggling to make ends meet as it was. Um, you know, housing is very inexpensive or very expensive. And typically uh, you need two income earners, right, to make things work for a family. Well, without that paycheck, um, this is, you know, April 1st, they missed their first um, rent payments. May 1st, they missed their second rent, rent payments. Yeah. They might be, they might have a landlord who is threatening eviction. Um, hopefully that is not the case since, you know, many of our local and state leaders have asked for landlords to offer some level of grace um, in this time, especially for challenging for everyone. In that family, they might have two school-aged children who depend on at least two of their three meals at their local school. Um with schools not physically in session, right, but everyone learning remotely, it has a harder impact on them on many different fronts. The first being hunger. Um, You know, uh, Columbus City Schools initially set up, I believe, around um, 12 school feeding sites, and then they opened up to several more. A challenge that we have right here in Columbus is not enough options, public transportation options, or even walkable, you know, walkable streets um, for children and families to get to the places that they need to get to. So 
initially school said that children had to show up at the school site between certain times with a parent to access their um, breakfast or their lunch. Well, you know, if you don't have a car, if you can't get on public transportation and if there's no sidewalks, you're not getting a meal or two meals. So that's another component here. A third that I'll just, you know, kind of briefly um, lay out for you is we've heard a lot about education equity or inequities that exist here in Ohio, even before COVID-19. I think this pandemic is really laying bare the stark differences that we have throughout the state. Um, we have 30% of um, individuals in the Appalachian areas and just as many in some of our urban areas who don't have access to internet. Either they can't afford the subscription or there's no last mile connection. So for many districts and let's, you know, Columbus City is a great example, who have tried to, and heroically in many cases, trying to, you know, get as many students online with Chromebooks and internet subscriptions as possible, you know, you're always gonna have a gap so if that child is um, an elementary age child or maybe a high school age child where either they don't have access to internet or the equipment or maybe their parents can't necessarily help them stay on track with their learning, we're gonna see some big gaps here. And those are, that's just a story of, of just one typical family who might just be living on that edge. I'm glad you, you went through all those elements because I want to go back to many of them because I know they're priorities for the Children's Defense Fund. And I want to talk about how COVID has, has influenced those priorities as well as the way that your organization is advocating and trying to provide services. But I just, your story is compelling. I, I want to come back to make sure I didn't miss a couple elements. Did I hear you say that one in five Ohio children are in a circumstance like the one you just described? That the, the per oh. I would probably say it's more than one in five. One in five children live in poverty here in Ohio, but absolute. I would I would say more more than that number. We're in that vulnerable circumstance. Mm -hmm. Well, and to that end, you you gave the example. You and I are both here in Columbus, uh, in the state capital, a large urban metro area that's been growing very rapidly. Um, but much of the state has been struggling pre-COVID in the wake of the 2008-2009 recession and the change to the sort of industrial makeup of the state. Is what we're seeing in Columbus, should we expect some of the same challenges to be prevalent in other urban areas like Cincinnati and Cleveland? Uh, and also, what about rural areas and small towns? Is it a different story in different places, or is the story you told uh, a similar one across the state? I think it's very, very different depending on where you are. And you know, um, something that I don't think is unique to Ohio, but I feel it's uniquely Ohio in a way, is um, our sense of local control with local governments. Everything from like our fire departments to our schools to transportation. So we're gonna experience issues like this very differently depending on where we're at. So just as an example, um, up north in Cleveland, you know, in Cuyahoga County, um, Cleveland Municipal School District, uh, they're, they're approaching like school feeding, school nutrition very differently than Columbus, no. who is approaching it very differently than say Westerville, right out right here in Columbus. So um, it's the way that we're approaching these different policy challenges, these very different human challenges are different depending on where we're at. And also the community assets that are available within those communities are different. So just for example, um, in Southeastern Ohio, the 32 counties 
of Appalachia, you know, you have lower subscription rates to internet and also just lower access to the last mile. There's less opportunity for those families to work remotely, even if that were an option, right? So they're going to experience this very differently, their economic opportunity. Likewise, their children are going to experience um, their learning opportunities very differently, you know, based on whether or not they're near hotspots or, you know, maybe their their school district is running a bus down their their road to offer that hotspot bubble, you know, around that community, around that neighborhood. Um, so it's, I would say some, you know, obviously some communities will get it better than others in terms of approaches, but um, the way we experience this is very regionalized. So let's, you, you mentioned the um, access to technology and, and, and the impact on education and done a great job just portraying the challenges that vulnerable families are facing. Now let's start talking about the Children's Defense Fund. You advocate around some of these issues. You know, I presume there was like a list of top priorities and then that got kind of scrambled a little bit with, with COVID. What, what are the big priorities now? And feel free to pick a few and we can just sort of walk through them. Um, this is a healthcare crisis right now. It's a, a health crisis. What, what's the Children's Defense Fund trying to um, advocate around that particular issue? Right. So um, I would say Children's Defense Fund is a very unique organization within Ohio um, and that we're a multi-issue child advocacy organization focusing on research, policy and advocacy. We don't represent any particular, you know, um, sector or group. We just represent children and what's in their best interest. So it makes us very, I think, um, unique in terms of the voice and what we bring to the table. so before COVID-19, and I'll just pick on one particular policy area, before COVID-19, a big area for us in 2020 was going to be children's health. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because in the last two years, Ohio has seen one of the largest spikes in the child uninsured rates um, in the country. And we were doing such a great job over the last year um, probably about the last seven or eight years prior to this, and then all of a sudden in two years, you see the spike. So in looking at this data, we were like, well, what's going on? You know, this is something we need to dig into. I'm sorry? What caused the spike? Exactly. So we really wanted to dig into this, and we started having lots of conversations with partners um, and other nonprofits, um, you know, um, practitioners, and also at the state agencies, Department of Medicaid, to try to figure this out. Um, unfortunately, the data isn't good enough, good enough for us to really have a good handle on this. But one thing that we know for sure, it wasn't a result of a good ep- economy. So a drop in Medicaid enrollments isn't necessarily bad news if it's paired with increases in private insurance rates, right? Right? Because that's a great story. That's the story that we want. But we, what we don't want is children being uninsured. So that was an area of focus for us. And we were going to do three things this year around children's health. We were going to, number one, really dig into the data to figure out what those contributing factors are to the uninsured rates and work with our partners across the state state to figure out administratively, regulatorily, um, if it's um, something legislative, you know, what policy levers needed to be pulled to make sure more children who were eligible were enrolled. Because ultimately, our goal is that all children are healthy and they thrive and flourish into adulthood. 
number one, right? That's job number one. Um, uh, the second part of the things that we wanted to do this year in Children's Health was really around protecting immigrant families around the states. So um, as you know, undocumented individuals who live in Ohio, who live in other parts of the country, they're just as susceptible to chronic health issues as anyone else. And also with um, legislation or, or rules, I'm sorry, that were um, made effective earlier this year called public charge, you know, it's very anti-immigrant, it's very hostile to families um, that could be undocumented, but it's also um, applies to a very small population of our immigrant population. However, a lot of the fear and rhetoric around it um, has caused confusion where large parts of our immigrant population and our immigrant community think it applies to them. So what we see is families who otherwise would be eligible for these programs like Children's Health disenrolling their children needlessly. Yeah. So a big area for us were to make sure was to make sure that number one, people understood which public charge were or was and also the rules around it and making sure that families weren't needlessly putting their children's health at risk um, by disenrolling them. So this, is, this is an area clearly where you guys had this on the list, but COVID has kind of accelerated. Um, uh, yeah, so those two issues, um, and there was a third, and it was about community engagement and engaging our policymakers around these issues and making sure we have champions. Yeah. Um, so that was our health policy agenda for this year. So um, COVID-19 strikes, and now we've really had to rethink a lot of the work that we're doing. Yeah. Um, now, children's health is obviously still important, but the way that we're approaching that is changing. And I'll give you a couple examples of how it's changing. Please. Number one, we saw that there was around a million people in the last six weeks who have filed for unemployment. That's a big Many number. of those individuals had insurance when they were employed. They can't afford COBRA now that they're unemployed. Right. So what do they do, right? So um, a big a big issue that we've been hearing a lot, everyone's been hearing a lot about, every time I turn on the two o'clock press conference I'm hearing about this, is how hard it is for individuals to um, enroll in unemployment compensation, right? So likewise, it's probably very difficult for them to enroll in other, other public services yeah. like Medicaid, like CHIP um, for, their, for their children. And so we were thinking about, well, what are other states doing currently, you know, to make the streamlining, um, you know, and accessing services that much easier for families who need it most, especially right now during a pandemic. And so there's um, something called express lane eligibility that we're looking into in terms of, you know, what would it take for someone to, you know, apply once for unemployment compensation and at the same time automatically get registered for health insurance and food assistance? Mm -hmm. I think this can be done. It sounds pretty efficient and easy to me, but, you know, these are the kinds of conversations that we want to have. So let's talk about the way you have conversations. Um, so many of us are probably familiar with the name, the Children's Defense Fund, but maybe not know a lot about how you work. Um, I think of you as always presently an advocacy organization around um, important policy issues, uh, but you're running the Ohio chapter. Um, many of the programs you're talking about span levels of government, federal, state, local. 
is most of your work concentrated here in Ohio, trying to, like you were just suggesting, this great innovative idea, try to get that embedded in Ohio law and policy, or is this more of a national conversation? Well, I would say we work on several different levels. Primarily, we work right here with state governments, you know, to affect change here in Ohio. Um, however, we also, because, you know, Ohio is a leader in many ways, we also think that we have a lot of great ideas and innovations coming out of our local governments and our state government. And, you know, we think that it's important that these great innovations and ideas are elevated, you know, to the federal level and also are shared with other states. So we, we belong to, you know, several national networks of other child advocacy organizations, um, CDF, actually has state offices in five other states besides mm -hmm. Ohio, though we're the oldest um, state office. And um, we, we engage a lot with, um, well, our state legislators, obviously, we talk to them quite a bit. We manage the Ohio Children's um, Legislative Caucus. Um, and also uh, at the federal level, we try to engage as much as possible with our congressional delegation so, for example, with um, the next federal disaster legislation that we're sure is coming, like in the next, you know, several weeks, um, we'll be doing quite a lot in terms of meeting with the legislative aides and legislators. So with our, um, you know, Senators Brown and Portman, with our different, um, you know, state representatives to make them aware of, of what Ohio needs, what we're hearing from on the ground, you know, individuals from practitioners, what we're hearing from our state agencies and making sure that the needs of, of Ohioans, you know, of local governments and um, across the state, that those are being met. So that's how we operate. I want to I want to push on that a little bit more and, and learn more about how you you work that intergovernmental system. But but I, I have to come back. I did not realize there are only five state chapters of the Children's Defense Fund, and you said Ohio was the the first. Yes. Uh, just a pure curiosity. How did Ohio become the first, and what are the other four? Right. So um, CDF started out as just a national organization with Mayor Wright Edelman. And they really worked on federal policy. Um, smartly, they came to the realization that um, change happens on the ground in local governments and state governments. And so what they wanted to do was have almost create a feedback loop to mm -hmm. see how federal legislation was manifesting itself into the state and local context and have that almost to learn and improve um, what they were advocating for again at the federal level. And so Ohio was the first state office um, in 1981. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know why necessarily they chose Ohio other than, you know, there was some great individuals here in Ohio who Mrs. Edelman thought would be, you know, great partners with the national office. And, but I know that for some of the other state offices that were started, it was primarily for a very specific reason. So for like Minnesota, I believe they were the second state office. And it was because they were the first to really have a managed care system in place. And so they wanted to see how that worked and how, what they could learn to inform federal policy on that. You, is there the aspiration that there would be one chapter in every state or, or is it, hey, these were opportune, this was an opportunity, as you said, in the early 80s, maybe there was a set of relationships. Um, but is there a national strategy? Or is it no, we've got a couple of regional uh, 
operations. And we're going to keep it that way. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that there's any aspirations to have chapters in every state. Um, let's see. No. Okay. No. Well, I'm, 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 I am wondering, is, is this something of a point of pride, i.e., this is a really, really important and impactful organization, and we should be proud that there's the original chapter here in Ohio, or should this be something, oh, no, things were so dire for vulnerable families here in Ohio. It was, it was an imperative that we, we begin advocating more vociferously here at the state level. What, 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 what should I take away from, from that? I would say that um, you should probably take away the fact that Ohio had a lot of forward-thinking people in that in the states right. who right. were doing a lot of innovative things and were willing to be collaborative and learn from a national organization and then, as such, you share with them. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I'm very proud to be here in Ohio, but sometimes Ohio winds up on some lists, with, particularly around healthcare outcomes, where. Um, we're, we're not at the point in the list we'd like to be. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad you guys are working hard to try and make that, that improve. So let's go back to the intergovernmental conversation. I mean, sure. some of these social welfare, social safety net programs are sort of federally funded, but state and locally administered. Talk a little bit about how in your advocacy work, at the state level here in Ohio, you're trying to tie Ohio into some of those national resources. And you could go back to the healthcare example. And I'm, I'm curious to know how those puzzle pieces fit together. Yeah, very carefully. Um, so, you know, Ohio has to, well, it, let's just start with health, right? So Ohio has a lot of discretion around how, what their children's health insurance program looks like. You know, there's certain things that they can do, like eligibility levels, um, things around, uh, obviously, work requirements was a big conversation up until recently with um, healthcare. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of areas where they have um, not necessarily well discretion and also the ability to make it more tailored to the needs of of what you know legislators and policymakers think Ohio needs or what fits our context. So within that sandbox, you know, that's kind of where we operate, you know, um, and also having knowledge of what is um, possible. So for example, we have other states where, um, you know, they've increased their um, children's health insurance eligibility beyond 200%, which is where Ohio has it set. You have to be under uh, at least at 200% of poverty or below to qualify for children's health insurance. Mm -hmm. Other states have increased that. So we try to take a look at what are some best practices or what are things that other states are doing that Ohio clearly has, you know, the leverage or the ability to do. But also, I think the, the puzzle piece of that is also keeping in mind that every policy decision has a price tag and every policy decision also has a human impact, right? So how do you balance that? You know, given where we are right now with, um, you know, state revenues, not knowing what the federal, you know, disaster relief will look like in the next rounds, you know, how do you balance all of those different needs? And I, I think that's where we are constantly um, looking at data, constantly reading through legislation, constantly talking to our partners across the state and across the country to figure this out because no one has this figured out. So yeah. we, we have to constantly be open to learning 
um, to rethinking um, our previous positions, um, you know, to, you know, make sure that the needs and the interests of children are always front and center. Um, so talk about the, the front and center. So right now we're in the midst of a, a dire public health crisis and our public officials, Governor DeWine, Director Acton and the Department of Health, um, and, and now increasing the legislature are focused on that public health crisis. Uh, and then sort of second behind that is the economic crisis. But there's, as you just described, a, a, a social crisis. How, how, how are you uh, or what would you be saying or what are you saying to those elected officials to say this should be top of the list? And, and how do we prioritize these issues moving forward? Yeah. So people will always be at the top of the priority list. Always. Um, children always at the top of the priority list. Um, and I, I think that the way that we need to, to, uh, to really tackle this is number one, we need to maximize every opportunity that the federal government is offering for, for dollars that we can flow into our state. You know, we need to maximize every opportunity, you know, to um, waive regulations around feeding programs for children or nutritional benefits for families or rental assistance, you know, every single opportunity we can take, let's just leverage it now. Um, also, I think that, you know, beyond that, as we're implementing these programs, we need to prioritize ease of administration. So before this, before this pandemic, um, I think that the stance or the position of most public assistance programs were to control costs, control enrollment, mm -hmm. right? So they, uh, there's, there's an assurance of some sort, if you make the processes difficult enough, only so many people will take advantage of it. Well, now that we have over a million people that are filing for unemployment and, and truly need this, you know, healthcare, they need compensation, they need all kinds of support. We need to prioritize those needs and we need to put that control cost um, mindset. And I know my, my friends who I used to work with at OBM would just shake their heads at me and say, what, what happened to you? But we need to put the needs of humans, of people, ahead of the needs of controlling costs at this moment. Um, so whatever we can do to remove barriers to enrollments, barriers, um, administrative barriers that are, you know, that are designed by people, designed by us, we need to remove those as much as possible. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the, the spot and ask you one of those unanswerable questions, but then demand that you answer the question. Sure. So look at your crystal ball, um, and let's just bet positively and say that we get this healthcare crisis under control somewhere in the, the near term, the next several months. How do you see COVID changing the trajectory of vulnerable families in Ohio? Is, is, is it going to go back to what it was before, or is this fundamentally altering the landscape of inequality and vulnerability for, for families on the margin in, in Ohio? You know, I, I really, I, I'm an optimist by nature. Good. We need, we need that. Yeah. And um, I, this is a question for all of us to answer, right? I think that this point in time presents to us the unique opportunity to imagine what kind of future we want for Ohio. 
So do we want to invest, right? Think big picture, think like a public works act of some sort, right? Do we want to invest public resources to create an Ohio where opportunity is available to all? Maybe it's like a statewide broadband guarantee, right? Um, do we want to make sure that this is an Ohio where we have a strong safety net and the social compact between the government and the people living within Ohio, that it is strong and everyone knows that, you know what, I'm going to work hard, but sometimes people fall in hard times and I know that I'll be taken care of and I will be able to, you know, bounce right back. I mean, I think that's the kind of Ohio that most of us want, that I want. And that's, uh, I think, um, I think about some of the changes that we're making in our public, um, health system right now to make sure that more people are insured and more people can get the services they need through telehealth and other services. I mean, I think that those are things that should continue and should flourish and, you know, grow and expand after this pandemic's over, not because we're preparing for the next pandemic, but because it's what we should have been doing in the first place and it's the right thing to do. Tracy, I'm hopeful that um, once we get through this crisis, we have enough bandwidth and, and sort of mental space to be able to envision that future world. You did a very nice job of artfully describing a new social compact. So thanks for taking this time to have this conversation with me. I know you're super, super busy. Oh, and well, really, thank really you. Well, thank you for having me. Um, anytime I can talk about our work and on behalf of children, you know, I'm very appreciative and thank you. Thanks, Trace. Policy Brief is produced by the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University. 